Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thanks so much for joining us for Darwin or Design, where we try to bring to you each week the latest information and breaking news on the front of the biggest question that uh, anybody in our society could deal with, and that is the origin of mankind, the origin of life, the origin of the universe. And we're excited to report week to week every angle on this important topic, uh, including both natural history, that is natural science, data and information evidence, and the angle from philosophy and theology, the information that comes from the creator himself, who's spoken very clearly and articulately about this topic of origins. God did not stutter or stammer. He spoke directly, forcefully, and clearly. And the evidence we're finding more and more seems to back up the notion of a supernatural or an intelligent, at least an intelligent designer, who we know from uh, Scripture and other evidence is a supernatural uh, the God who made himself known to us in the person of Christ. We're thankful for our two uh, supporters, our two sponsors that week-to-week enable this program to come to you. First of all, the C.S. Lewis Society, which has for 20 years now been presenting the case for Christ on university campuses and holding conferences and debates on that on the topics of evidence for design and evidence for Christ from Scripture and history. And we're also thankful for the support of St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, Dr. James P. Gills, who needs, in a way, no introduction in the Tampa Bay, has made this program possible also through the wonderful, generous support from the wonderful people at St. Luke's. Make sure you visit their new website. I mean, it's not new, but it's redesigned. It's a beautiful website. I was visiting there this morning, Bill Carl. And by the way, Bill Carl, thank you, Mr. Mm. Technical Director, leading us through uh, like the captain, co-captain on this ship, <laughs> plowing through the waves of scientific controversy. <laughs> dun, 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 dun. There we go. Okay. I like your musical interlude there. But uh, hey, I have a question for you, Bill. Yeah, lay it on me. You know, guess where, what famous university, quasi-Ivy League university in North Carolina that Dr. Gills attended. That would have to be Duke. That's right! That's right. For 10,000... Oh, what they offer. call the Princeton of the, the South. The Princeton of the South, and maybe yes. even the Harvard of the South. We'll, we'll debate. But he also uh, went to and did his postdoc at Wilmer Eye Center, which is part of Johns Hopkins, world-famous medical school. And, of course, since 19, uh, around 80, when he moved into the... Uh, actually, I'm sorry, a little bit earlier than that, uh, it was about 68 and 70 when he moved into the Tampa Bay area, began working in this uh, area of pioneering cataract surgery. And so they work on a myriad of eye conditions, eye diseases, make people better, and with excellence and with love, I love the motto, excellence with love, they are able to bring highest quality eye care at their Bayonet Point, at their Spring Hill office, uh, also in St. Petersburg, and of course the main a clinic hospital there in Tarpon Springs, right on US 19. So make sure you visit them. Their telephone number is 727-938-2020. 727-938-2020. 
800-800-2020. We take our hat off to Dr. Gills and the whole team of medical care people, surgeons there at St. Luke's. Well, we are excited to have on the phone with us from Dallas, Texas area, North Texas, North Dallas, I should say, in the Richardson area, Dr. Ray Bullen. Ray Bullen is a graduate of uh, the university. Let me just pull this out correctly, Dr. Bullen. <laughs> university of Texas at Dallas is where you got your Master of Science and your PhD in Molecular and Cell Biology. Do I have that right? That's correct. Very good. And you've been with Probe Ministries since 1975. Yeah, so, right. You're about 30, a little 30-odd years with them. That's right. That's, That's fantastic. Years. Yep. Okay. And, of course, you are now a president of Probe Ministries. Of course, your colleague there, Kirby Anderson, well-known from his uh, yeah. able to speak on the Internet and the radio uh, waves. But you have your own radio interviews. Your radio transcripts are available at Probe. And it looks like you're – I mean, there must be a, several dozen of these on all kinds of scientific topics. Tell us a little bit about Probe Ministries, first of all. Well, Probe has uh, been around since about 1973, so about two years before uh, I got here, and primarily we're an apologetics and worldview ministry in the sense that we uh, encourage the church primarily to renew their minds in the way they think and use the the Word of God to um, infuse all of the ways that they see things and how they think, and then also be ready at any time to give an answer for the hope that we have. And in today's culture, that that uh, covers a wide range of of issues. And at our website at probe.org, not only will you find those several dozen science articles, but other articles that deal with cults and world religions and philosophy, the the arts, humanities, all those kinds of things. That's terrific. And I know from when I was in uh, graduate school at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I was hearing more and more uh, more and more about probe ministries. I actually, I don't think I've ever confessed this, so I'm confessing it on air. It's a kind of dangerous thing for me to do, Bill. Okay, but I actually have always fantasized being on staff with Probe. There, I, oh, got, really? I, I got it off my, I got it off my heart. <laughs> I've confessed okay. it to the world. I mean, I literally, you know, the, Bill, Bill, Carl is shaking his head as if you know, if that's the worst you can do. <laughs> I was going to say, if that's it, <laughs> you're ahead of the game. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, what I did was I was involved in a ministry similar to Probe. But it was kind of produced out of thin air, kind of for lack of a better phrase, at a little a college in the southwest corner of Dallas County called Mountain View. Have you ever heard of Mountain View? College? Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It's yeah. down there in Oak Cliff area uh, where uh, so many uh, great ministries have been spawned. Well, I was involved in meeting with professors on the campus when I was working with Campus Crusade and a guy named Conrad Cook, a co- classmate of mine from Dallas. We both graduated in 79. Uh, he got me charged up about the idea of creating a speakers bureau and present a whole list of topics mm-hmm. and talks that we, that is he and I and maybe six or eight other people we knew, either students at Dallas Seminary or local Christian thinkers and, and researchers, could bring on topics of you know straightforward secular interest, but all with a kind of a Christian point of view. And I, as I then I heard about Probe, I thought, hey, Probe's been doing for years what we're trying to do here on this <laughs> campus. So That's tell us what we initially started out to do, and it uh, and uh, once we got to about the mid to late '80s, we found that the university campus was no longer a place that was open to different points of view. And wow! We just got shut out again and again, and hmm. department heads began sending around uh, memos to all their faculty saying, "Don't have any of these people in your classroom." You're and, kidding me. Oh, yeah, that's, you know, it was something we called the Christian Update Forum, and we'd bring a team of scholars to well, well over 
uh, two do four dozen or so different campuses, 50 or more, in the, in the 10 years we were doing that. And, um, you know, we show them a list of topics, speaker credentials, and say, we'll be here these three days. Would you want any of these speakers in your class? And here's the topic list you pick. Mm. And we were very successful. We had several campuses that would have, we had 100, 200 classrooms scheduled over, you know, a three, four-day period. And but then you got to the mid-'80s, and it just began to be tougher and tougher. And they just didn't want to hear from somebody who said, well, we think we've got the right way to look at things. That's amazing. <laughs> well, I mean, and, and it was right about the mid-'80s, I see on your list, when you worked with a guy named Lane Lester yes. on a topic which really, I guess, came, you know, it became this book, which I've heard, you know, through the years, is one of the, the most important books in scouting out or, or really hashing out the limits of what natural change can do. In other words, yeah. the natural limits to biological change we see from biological data. And I, and I, and I see here that that is still available through Probe, uh -huh. and, and it's both co-authored by you and uh, Lane Lester, so Bolin and Lester. Uh, Bolin, of course, your name with an H-B-O-H-L-I-N, is The Natural Limits to Biological Change. Tell us a little bit about that book, how it came about, and what is the essence of the argument. Well, it came about through a series of books that Probe uh, began to publish um, in the late 70s. We just called it a, a Christian free university curriculum where it was going to simply be a Christian worldview perspective mm -hmm. on a particular issue and topic. And so we chose this whole area of evolution and biological change. I had just finished a master's program at the University of North Texas dealing specifically with evolutionary genetics, population genetics. So all the, that kind of information was very fresh in my head. And we, we partnered simply not so much to write what some would have called a, or might have called a creationist tract of some kind, but we really wanted to simply present, okay, if evolution is supposed to happen, what's the major evidence they cite for it? And what are the problems simply with that evidence? And is there another way to look at things? And so at the time, not just the Darwinian approach and the slow gradual evolution was, was prominent, but also uh, the new theory by Gould, Eldridge and Gould of punctuate equilibria mm -hmm. was also very popular at that time. So our idea was to present those two ideas as plainly and as matter-of-factly and correctly as we could. Mm. And, and therefore, we wanted to make sure that anybody who's going to read the book understood at least we know what we're criticizing mm. and we represented it fairly. And then we followed each of those chapters up with a chapter critiquing that each of those views. And, you know, we sought some, you know, response from people from each of those camps and, you know, at least representing you fairly. And for the most part, they said we did. Um, they still didn't agree with our overall conclusions, but we kind of took all that, that data at the end and provided what we simply called another alternative. And, um you know, it's really interesting, Tom, to realize that even at that time in 1984, um, we were throwing around terms like intelligent design and creative intelligence and all sorts of phrases simply trying to come up with a way, you know, within the academic community that people would understand what we're talking about. Mm. And um, so, yeah, we didn't have the, the term intelligent design as, as, a, as a word that we, as a phrase that we use specifically, but we, it was one of those, one of many that we tossed around trying mm -hmm. to describe what we were talking about. And, of course, it was about uh, that same time, and I'm going to have to pick this up on the next segment, but on the, that same period of the late 
uh, 80s, at least the mid to late 80s, that Michael Behe, of course, well, actually, he's early 90s, but Michael Denton's book came right. on, online, Evolution of Theory and Crisis. Then the, around the same time, the Thaxton, Walter Bradley and Charles Thaxton and their colleague uh, Olson brought out these critiques. Now, I want to come back in the next segment and ask you to kind of, in your perspective, give us an estimation of where we've come, how fast or how far, I should say, we've come in the last 15 or 20 years since those amazing early heydays. We'll dive right in when we get back with Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design. We've uh, been talking with Dr. Ray Bullen, who is the president of Probe Ministries based in North Dallas, Texas an area called Richardson, and I can relate to that area because I used to live in North Dallas shortly after completing seminary, and I taught, I don't know if you knew this, Ray, I taught at Trinity Christian Academy up in oh, Addison. Oh, yeah. And so from 79 to 82, for better or worse, those junior high and high school students had me for their Bible teacher and, and some history courses as well. That was, those were great times. And, you know, we've been talking, we've been throwing around in, in some of the chat we've had today about this very popular term in the political scene namely the maverick. You know, I want to be the maverick. But I think that you guys in the intelligent design proto-movement, I mean, it wasn't called that till maybe the mid-90s, and when it was officially settled on by 95, yeah. 96. But I think that you guys, as you said yourself, you were throwing around, you were groping for the empirically, the scientifically rooted term that would really bear the weight and and kind of bear out that you can detect intelligence within systems. So my first question do you think that we have come to the place in science where we can definitely detect the action of an intelligence in a physical system? You know, Tom, I think we've actually been there for, for a long time. Hmm. And it's just, um, I don't know, take, taking sort of a, an extreme pressure approach <laughs> to get some to at least be willing to say, yeah, I think, I think you, you can actually do that. And, um, you know, we made the analogy in the natural limits to biological change of, of referring to DNA and, and its language as saying that there's both vocabulary and grammar. And the vocabulary of, of DNA is essentially the, the codons. and the those, actual, are, those are the three-letter the three the three DNA uh, words. The three-letter sequence that, that determines the sequence of a protein. Okay. And, and the genes themselves are almost like the vocabulary. And the grammar which is also necessary for language, is the regulatory processes that we're only now beginning to unravel and unveil within the genome about how those vocabulary words or the genes are actually used and when. And our, our suspicion back then was, was to lay out and, and suggest that, you know, I don't think the vocabulary or the genes themselves are going to separate species to species or group to group. We bet it's going to be the regulatory elements. And that's really where we're starting to come down to. So many of the, the genes themselves are quite similar from species to species, from group to group, but it's the regulatory plan, how all that stuff is, is, is processed and how it's used and when and how much. That's what's making the difference between different groups of animals and plants. Well, then, in, in a retrospect, looking back, let's say, 20, 23 years since the time you wrote uh, and did your Ph.D. work there at the University of North Texas, 
and you wrote the book, The Natural Limits to Biological Change. And let me just mention, if, in case you've just joined us, we're uh, dialoguing with Dr. Ray Bullen, president of Probe Ministries, a lecturer on science in general, and especially in the area of biology, where his Ph.D. is in uh, molecular and cell biology. And Dr. Ray Bullen, uh, you have seen a lot happen in the last 20, 25 years since you wrote that uh, original research, and of course you've written a ton of additional articles. It would take me five minutes to list all these published uh, articles and publications. Would you see that the intelligent design idea has germinated not only you know, in, let's say, the eyes of Christian thinkers or, let's say, theists, but uh, in other words, like within a discussion of creation, but it's actually beginning to get some traction, at least in some parts of the academic world. Uh, what would be the, the hopeful signs, and where do we have a long ways to go? Well, the really hopeful signs are, are some of what could be perceived the most ugly and negative signs. Hmm. And let, me, let me clarify that. When, I was, when we began talking about this in the mid-'80s and such, and I was doing university lectures I even had a lecture that I did at some of our probe forums called Natural Limits to Biological Change. And I actually got to speak at a few genetics classes to do that. And, you know, professors were cordial. They were interested. They thought we were wrong. But, you know, here's a new idea. Oh, you got this, you got that. And we, we actually had some good give and take, where the reality is that could not happen today in most universities, primarily because of the progress we have made the visibility that intelligent design now does have, the academic respectability it has gained in so many different circles. The fact that Discovery Institute's got a list of over 700 PhDs that have all expressed their uh, doubts about the ability of Darwinism to explain all that we see in the biological world, that's light years ahead of where we were 25 years ago. My goodness. And it's so encouraging, you know, to me, um, because, you know, in, the, to one, in one sense, my, my task was easy because I didn't have the recrimination coming at me like people do today. Because you were not Even teaching as far at a, down as undergraduates. Because you're not teaching at a secular institution. No. Mm -hmm. No. And, and even then, when I was in the secular institutions, I was kind of a novelty, but I could be open about what I thought. I would critique things. I would ask questions. And nobody put me down. They, Like I said, they thought I was wrong, but I wasn't looked upon as a kook or a nut. And now... We hear about stories of even undergraduates are being watched to see if they attend certain kind of lectures and meetings, and they get a talking to afterwards. And that, that kind of scrutiny only would come if intelligent design has become a threat. Well, I mean, we're talking, of course, about the release in the matter of days of the Expelled DVD, which, yeah, uh, which right. did quite a bit of good work in alerting at least some people. About a million people saw it in theaters, and probably multiple millions will see it in DVD form. Do you overall think that the expelled, uh, you know, kind of genre, or at least that specific documentary, made sense? In other words, was it accurately portraying the problem? I think it did very accurately portray the problem. It was very, it was very one-sided in mm -hmm. how in the perspective it took, and 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 that's completely understandable. But that's just one of the things that has has garnered some criticism from folks. If it's going to be a documentary, you ought to be able to at least be able to, to, to present both sides of the, of, of the perspective, but the reality is they did have evolutionists speaking out. They did interview people from both sides, um, and the fact that a, a film like that could even be a possibility in the theaters, that there are people in the film industry or those who chose, choose to go into the film industry because there's a real story to be told, 
again, is, is to me, is a major milestone of the progress that we are making and the fact that, you know, so many uh, very loud evolutionary voices took very important time and energy to, you know, write their own reviews, write their own rejections, to encourage people not to go. And I was just sitting here cheering, yes, do that. Tell them not to go. I'll encourage more people to go. <laughs> and that sort of <laughs> don't, thing. Any, don't any read that book. Don't watch that movie. It will, it, will, right. it will pollute you. Oh, that's, a, that's exactly what you want to say to young people. Yeah, well, well, that's right. Well, Michael Behe, I mean, huge figure in this whole uh, yeah. burgeoning case against neo-Darwinism, at least in the molecular mechanism of mutation yeah. selection. Do you think that his work, both in the Darwin's Black Box and the newer book, uh, Edge of Evolution, which um, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. I would assume that you would, you would applaud his efforts. Absolutely. You know, Michael was kind of, in my, it was the second foot to come down. The first one... I'm sure you've talked about it and talked to him, Phil Johnson. Yes. And they were both primarily so effective, not just because of what they wrote and how they said it, because similar books and similar perspectives had come along before, but the academic community was able to essentially ignore them. Mm-hmm. But Johnson was a tenured UC Berkeley law professor. B, he comes along now as a biochemist. So a, a biologist by training, also tenured, published, those two individuals could no longer be ignored. You know, Natural Limits to Biological Change, when that came out in 84, was not reviewed in Nature or Science. <laughs> I mean, they didn't even know it existed. Sadly, it should, it should have been. <laughs> but they, can't, they couldn't ignore these voices coming from within their own ranks, and that's you know, why they've been so important. And, and, you know, the, their books were masterful to start with, but mm-hmm. even a masterful book by, say, somebody like me who works for a ministry, just wasn't going to get paid attention to by the academic community. Right. They could not ignore Johnson and Behe. And that's, you know, I give them all the credit in the world, um, you know, that they've been extremely important. It's also why they've received such such awful criticism and, yes. and tearing apart and lying sent out after them. And, you mm-hmm. know, Michael Behe and both, and, and, and Johnson are just, Two of the greatest guys you ever want to meet, mm-hmm. and to see them treated like they are is just really shameful, I think. Well, I mean, I, I like the way Behe put it when his second book, The Edge of Evolution, came out and effectively demonstrated, and when we wanted to get that, you know, this point out in the next segment, you know, what mutations can do and especially what they cannot do. But when Behe demonstrated that mutations, and we know this from the data, that mutations are basically breaking these sophisticated systems, and they're not mm-hmm. building anything new. They're not doing anything interesting. And when the data from the malaria genome and the human genome began to indicate this, it's, you know, it's like there's, there's no place to hide for the Darwinists. And okay. so uh, I, I loved it when Behe, replying to Richard Dawkins' review, his kind of uh, ferocious attack review in the New York Times, Behe says this is like the worst of the reviews, and it, account, it amounts to one long sneer at me mm-hmm. without any substance. And I was, you know, I was appalled when, you know, when Behe, and again, I'm, I'm probably jabbering on too long here, but I was appalled when Behe's main point was completely ignored by Dawkins, and he says, the answer is dog breeding. We have dog breeds. That proves our theory. I mean, like, that should make any even junior high level biology student sit up and take notice, and that's the best you can do, Dr. Dawkins? The game is over. I mean, in 30 seconds, just give me your, your take on where we're heading in the next couple of years. 30, 30, 40 seconds. 
where we're headed in the next couple of years in intelligent design needs to prove itself. Mm-hmm. We need to be able to get some traction in applying intelligent design within the laboratory, within that structure, and be able to show this is a theory that produces results. Okay, and we're going to get back to those active, present-day experimental results in a few minutes, and we're going to dive right into some of the biggest questions I've been just itching to ask you. We have on the phone with us to doctor today Dr. Ray Bolin, a brilliant biologist, a wonderful guy, got to know him at several conferences, author of The Natural Limits to Biological Change, which you can get from Probe Ministries. That's at probe.org. We'll be right back with Dr. Bolin in just a few minutes. You're listening to Darwin or Design. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thank you so much for joining us on Darwin or Design today. And I can tell you that when we attack the topic of Darwin or Design, we try to bring uh, really the both points of view, both sides of the evidence out. And if you know of any Darwinian, any Darwin-type uh, thinker, researcher, student, teacher, somebody who's adamantly or passionately defending the neo-Darwinian theory, if you'd like to recommend that person or give me a contact name, a number, an email address, whatever, I would be happy to bring on more Darwinian uh, participants. Uh, I've always been trying. I've been, and I cannot tell you how many times I've made calls, I've sent emails, and usually with very little uh, results. But uh, we're glad to do the other side of this whole equation, the other point of view, and bring that on. And, of course, we wouldn't just let it be expressed without response or critique. We'd always do that as well. But we also do want to thank our two wonderful sponsors, the C.S. Lewis Society which for 20 years now has been presenting the case for Christ, the case for creation, but especially the case for Christ at universities, both in the United States and overseas, and also coming to local churches. I'm happy and delighted to take invitations to actually speak in a Sunday morning service or a you know, Friday night, Saturday night seminar, whatever, on the topics of evidence for design, the case against neo-Darwinism and the case for design. And, of course, we do a variety of other lectures and topics as well. But we want to thank the C.S. Lewis Society for faithfully supporting this broadcast week by week. Also, I would like to thank Dr. Gills, Dr. James P. Gills and his son, Dr. Pitt Gills, and the whole staff and the wonderful team that's there at St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute based up at the north end of Tampa Bay in Tarpon Springs, right on U.S. 19, very conveniently located just uh, just a hair above the Tarpon Avenue cross street. There it goes into Tarpon Springs. Uh, the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute for 32 years have been, have been bringing the Tampa Bay and Central Florida area top quality eye care. We thank them so much, and we want to encourage you to visit their website, stlukeseye.com. That's stlukeseye.com. And they're available also to take your calls, answer your questions about all kinds of both skin and eye and hearing care at 727-938-2020. They have 2020 vision. I never have forgotten their phone number at 727-938-2020. So we want to thank also Dr. Ray Bullen for joining us from his office at Probe Ministries, a Christian think tank, I guess is one way to describe it, in the North Dallas area. Dr. Ray Bullen I am excited and thankful that you were able to take a look at my book, 
Darwin Strikes Back and Give Me a Plug. That was very, very uh, kind of you. I cherish the, your plug and some other scientists. Um, I, I use the theme in that book of Darwin Strikes Back. Do you see a Darwin continuing to strike back today? Oh, yes, they are. Yes, they are. We're, we're going to see it in full force in 2009, I think. All these Darwin celebrations that are being planned in the museums, universities, high schools, uh, community colleges to celebrate the 200th anniversary of Darwin's birth and the 150th anniversary of his publication of The Origin of Species. I think we're going to get Darwin <laughs> much more than anybody ever bargained for. <laughs> uh, Darwin trickling down our throat a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, and, and part of the reason for that is because they know they have a, an idea they don't like it being called a theory anymore unless you define what a theory is to their satisfaction. Um, but they've got a theory that's in trouble. Yeah. And they realize people don't understand it and people aren't accepting it. And so they're trying to jump on these two anniversaries, I think, as an excuse to try to help stem the tide. And mm -hmm. we just have to, have to wait and see what happens. Well, I remember somebody saying recently, I think it was on evolutionnews.org, um, a news blog I go to almost every day. I imagine you visit evolutionnews.org also. But it was, uh, the, it was some kind of, kind of you know, presentation of a rah-rah Darwin, you know, either article or book or lecture. Yeah. And, and the, the writer, I think it was Casey Luskin, said, you know, Darwin's theory doesn't need cheerleaders. It needs a paramedic. I thought that, yeah. that yeah. captures it quite well. Yeah, Tell as us, I always said, Darwin, Darwinism is a mechanistic theory without a mechanism. They need a mechanism far more than they need a, <laughs> than they need a medic. Well, so let, let's, just, let's, go, uh, let's go into that mechanism. I, I personally have the view that the tree of life, the common ancestry part, the interrelatedness part of Darwin's theory is a very feeble hypothesis, but it's yeah. not in, entirely without support. But I, but I would consider the Darwinian mechanism, the mutation selection mechanism, when it comes to its ability to really create new novelty, morphological or structural novelty, novelty or DNA code, that mechanism is not just uh, feeble, it's failed. I don't know if you agree with me, but if you would go into the mechanism and why the mutation selection mechanism is in deep hot water. Well, the mutation selection mechanism is, has always been uh, extremely theoretical. It, even when it was formulated as we understand it today and is propagated today, the near-Darwinian synthesis of the 30s and the 40s, they really didn't have any examples to point you to. They didn't really have evidence specifically. It was primarily a mathematical construct, hmm. even at that time. And when the best they could do was about 20 years later in the, the peppered moth story, and, and that's fallen on to hard times, yeah, we've got some examples of selection in nature and, and you know, where different variants seem to, to prosper and others don't. Yeah, we've got lots of examples of selection, but those that we can document are actually from some kind of mutational event are really far and few between, and what they accomplish is, is very, very little, very, very small. And so the theory really has always been in crisis to a certain degree, but I think because so many of its uh, propagators were, were, were desperate for something that could uh, account for origin of species in a purely naturalistic mechanism, they, they had to take what they had, what they could get. And uh, so many of them now, I think, fully don't realize how much their philosophy, how much their worldview is driving their interpretation of the evidence. I still think that's the major roadblock, and they just don't see it. They don't understand it. 
What do you think of the work of uh, Doug Axe and people like Ralph Silkey, who seem to be demonstrating that even uh, small changes, such as you know kicking back into structural form a damaged trip A gene, even given you know trillions of opportunities, you know two or three or four thousand generations, uh, and it still can't repair one or two digits. It can repair one digit, but when you go to the two digit, it multiplies it out of the range of reach of even two digit correction. Isn't that a kind of a, a damaging finding in, in the experimental level? It, it absolutely is damaging, Tom. And and the reason though it's not going to have as much traction as we might hope it would is principally because, from my experience from the inside, that the mathematics of it, when you start pushing up numbers at most evolutionary biologists and at um, population geneticists and those who do that kind of work, it's like, well, it just becomes too many big numbers, and they just fall back, and they say, well, but we know evolution happened because we're here, you know, and... and but that's circular the mathematics that's, of it is cir- hard for them to deal with, honestly. They, yeah, but that's circular reasoning of the yes, most blatant, yes, blatant yes, sort. Yes. I mean, how do they get away with that? How can how can university professors fall back on such a silly thing? When I know Wistar, the famous Wistar meeting in the mid '60s, I think it was uh, I don't know if it was Ernst Mayer or one of those guys said, "Well, we're com- comforted by the fact we're here." I mean, someone would should have said foul, you know, like a referee. You know, they should have thrown the flag and said, "Wait a minute, that is abysmal reasoning. That is such poor reasoning that a third grader should be sent to the back of the room for that." Uh, and I totally agree, and, it, and it's just a matter of the, that the, mechanist, the materialistic and naturalistic worldview is is just so dominant, they mm. don't realize the blinders they have on. They're very anti-intellectual at that point, well, I, I yeah, would dare to say. But in, in their own minds, they think they are giving an educated response, because that's, they are educated. And mm. They certainly wouldn't say anything that's uneducated. So uh, the biggest task we have in my opinion, is is presenting evidence and data in a way that helps them to see I've got a mask on or I've got some lenses on here that's interpreting all this stuff, and mm. it, I'm not being objective. That's the tough task. And, um, and of course, I can even, mm. when I present on a university campus or in a secular environment, if I can simply get the professors, grad students, those already steeped in evolutionary thinking to simply say, Oh, this this ID creationist guy—he's he's not quite what I thought he was. He might have some interesting things to say. Hmm. To me, I've accomplished a great deal. Yeah, because it's the, the 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 cement that their minds are stuck in is so firm that you just even to get a little bit of a twist is is a huge advantage. I remember what Phil Johnson once said. He says, "I never go into a debate thinking that my goal is to really win the debate in the eyes of the audience." Uh, or even, I think he said, a lecture. I, you know, I don't, I don't think that I'm going to transform their minds. My goal is that when people leave that lecture or that debate, they'll think to themselves, hmm, there's more to this than I knew about. And I think I hear you saying it's the same thing. That's exactly right. And, and you know, if you've got a few undergraduates in the room, yeah, their they're, they're, uh, ways of thinking, their worldview is still forming. Mm-hmm. And you've got a chance with some of them to get them to look at it a lot differently and, and to make some changes. But those who've been in the system for a while, you're just looking for a slight change of perspective and that very kind of reaction. Well, there's more to this than I thought, mm-hmm. and that's part of why I don't I don't decry the the vociferous reactions we get from some of the extreme evolutionary atheists and such because 
all of that ranting eventually will start to, to ring pretty thin to a lot of people, at least those who have mm. common sense, and say, you know, that same reaction will come about. There's got to be more to it than this, because these people they're, they're ranting and raving about, they're educated people, too. Mm. This doesn't make sense. There's more to it. Well, so uh, let, let them scream. Yeah, I was going to say, you, you've pointed out a silver lining to the dark cloud of the rant that I, we sometimes forget. That you yeah. know that you know the creator himself may be quietly probing and poking and working and and entering certain nooks and crannies of that person's thinking process in their heart. Uh, you have uh, coming out, or I guess it's actually been out for a while, a new product, and we want to talk about that in our final segment, Redeeming Darwin. I, I yeah. want to know everything about this because it sounds exciting, innovative, very, very important for each one of us to hear about. Thanks so much for joining us uh, today on Darwin or Design. We'll be right back with Dr. Ray Bolin. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Thank you so much for joining us today again on Darwin or Design. We're talking with Ray Bullen, who is a friend of mine. We've gotten to know each other through the years in our common love of apologetics and of science and of things pertaining to the creation evolution debate and in particular this new line of research this new line of presentation called intelligent design and of course since we're all about darwin or design it's a good idea to talk about someone who's an expert on darwin or design or both of them in this case ray bullen is he is the author of this fantastic book called the natural limits to biological change it is a classic i hope you don't mind me saying that ray or Dr. Dr. Bullen, uh, we are able to uh, let you know that it's available on the Internet through uh, probe.org, the ministry bookstore. I think that's a correct uh, statement. Mm -hmm. Okay. And if you would uh, just maybe make a quick comment here, other than, let's say, your book, a good good place to start along with a cluster of other books. We've already mentioned Darwin, um, Michael Behe's book, excuse me, Darwin's Black Box. We talked about Philip Johnson's. A book, Darwin on Trial. I've written Darwin Strikes Back. Don't, would you agree with me that um, there's some pretty good videos or DVDs out there also, uh, one-hour documentaries? Oh, absolutely. I would say both um, uh, from Illustra Media, the Unlocking the Mystery of Life mm-hmm. and uh, The Privileged Planet. Mm-hmm. Both of those are, are excellent uh, instructional tools. They're engaging. The graphics are, are extremely well done. Yeah, they're phenomenal. The, the, Video presentation, I think, is, is the best I've seen, and and the, one of the more exciting things is they're coming out with a new one next year on on the Cambrian explosion. And, That's exciting. Uh, so we're we're looking great. I'm lo- greatly looking forward to that. I'm looking for some new illustrations for some of my lectures. That's yeah, me too. Well, I've actually <laughs> I've actually gotten a glimpse of the animated Anomalocaris. You know, the great, ah, okay. the, the big guy with the arms sticking out front, and yeah, the scary looking the one. Scary looking one. Yes, the one <laughs> that will grab you and thrust you up to this little round mouth where he chomps at you. Uh, I has has always been one of the favorites in my lectures, so I can't wait to see the whole film. By the way, the other one of the other new books out, I just thought I'd mention real quick uh, for the whole those of you listening in on Darwin or Design is the book God's Undertaker by Dr. John Lennox. God's Undertaker is entitled the subtitle is 
uh, has science buried God? Question mark. Has science buried God? And of course, the answer is a thunderous no. And Dr. John Lennox of Oxford University says why. And let me mention to you, if you haven't reserved your place for our annual banquet coming up November 1st, it's not too late to call in to 727-738-2898 for the November 1st Saturday evening annual banquet at the Matthäus Hall at the corner, near the corner of U.S. 19 and Gulf to Bay in Clearwater. The C.S. Lewis Society, of course, has an annual banquet, and Dr. John Lennox, author of that book, will be with us for the evening and, of course, presenting a talk the next night at Eckert College at 8 o'clock Sunday night, November 2nd. But if you want to join us, there's no charge for tickets. Just contact Mrs. Normandy Woodward. That's my wife. She is the coordinator of the banquet. So I thought I would put in that shameless plug for our uh, our banquet. Now, back to Dr. Ray Bolin, a graduate uh, with several degrees in science, originally University of Illinois, B.S. in um, zoology, Bachelor of Science in zoology, University of North Texas, population genetics, University of Texas at Dallas with another master's degree in molecular and cell biology and a Ph.D. in also that same field of molecular and cell biology. Dr. Ray Bolin, president of Probe Ministries, a fantastic author, lecturer, um, and as you know, at least listening to this interview, it's been a cr- incredibly enlightening and a very, very encouraging. Tell us about this new Redeeming Darwin uh, program that Probe has been working on. Well, part of what we've been seeing, uh, Tom, is that so many, uh, you know, our ministry primarily is to the church and trying to engage them to think biblically, to think along a Christian worldview, and largely in, in the culture as a whole here in the U.S., and it, it infects and, and works its way into the church as well, we've become rather, um, well, shall we say, lazy intellectually. <laughs> and, we, you know, it, it's it's become more and more of a struggle to come and present a Christian worldview conference or an apologetics conference, and it just seems like it's too much for a lot of people. Hmm. So we decided to take smaller chunks, basic ideas that we felt people in the culture would already have questions about, maybe already confused about, and use that as, as a bit of a platform to help increase their awareness, get them to think more biblically according to a Christian worldview. And the first one we did was on the Da Vinci Code, which you know provided a clear opportunity where so many were confused. What's this book about? What are they trying to say? Is it really true? And all that sort of stuff. So we put together a... A, a, a package we called Redeeming the Da Vinci Code. And we did, Probe did, four segments, four 20-minute video segments uh, addressing aspects of the book and answering the challenges. And then we partnered with another ministry called Evantel, and they produced then another shorter segment, about a 30-minute segment, simply to show someone how they could take a conversation about the Da Vinci Code and use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. Well, with Intelligent Design, we've done something very similar, where Probe Ministries has produced a, an 80-minute video that simply can be divided then into four segments, four meetings for a small group. It's a small group uh, DVD curriculum that will explain various aspects about evolution in the culture, what's wrong with evolution, what exactly is intelligent design, what's the evidence for it, and then how, what's the reaction of the culture to it. And then we partnered again with Evantel, who produced another 30-minute or so training segment to show you how to take a conversation about intelligent design and use that, or about evolution, use that to share the gospel. That's how you redeem Darwin. You take the conversation, you take the controversy, get informed about it, and then use that as an opportunity to share the gospel. We know we can't redeem Darwin himself, but 
you try to redeem the controversy, in other words. Right. And, of course, Darwin himself, according to Charles Thaxton, one of the founders of the design movement, would probably be quite surprised at layer upon layer of really high-tech complexity that has been discovered inside our cells. What are some of the things that really, as you look at it, as a biologist, since you're a Ph.D., graduate in biology, molecular cell biology, uh, what what do you see in the discoveries of the cell really strikes you, really gets you excited about this world of high-tech complexity inside that little capsule? Well, some of the new stuff that, that's coming out now about the, being able to compare one genome to another. We've sequenced the human genome. We've sequenced, sequenced uh, dozens now, I think, of, of other organisms and their entire genome. And we're starting to compare... We're starting to get a better idea about how some of this is actually functioning. I'm sure you've probably talked about it already in some sense that the accusation has been for a long time that so much of our human genome was probably junk. Yes, we've talked about only, junk DNA. Yeah, but, only but, about but, 1% was supposed to be mm-hmm. worth anything. The rest of it was, was just an evolutionary holdover. Well, now they're just coming out with so many more discoveries that are showing that junk ain't junk, and we don't really know exactly what it's doing. But somehow the sequences have been kept the same for what they would say are are generation upon generation, millions of years upon millions of years, and what they're doing, nobody knows. (laughs) And uh, I got a chance to hear a lecture by Richard Sternberg not too long ago, and and he relates some rather fascinating things. Let me just jump in and point out out to our listeners, Richard Sternberg is the guy who got in hot water at the Smithsonian and uh, allowing the peer reviewing of that article by Steve Meyer and, and is featured at the front end of the Expelled movie. So tell yeah. us about Richard Sternberg's lecture. What he, one of the things he talked about was, was there's a lot of these really short little sequences that are found spread out throughout the genome, and we're not quite sure what they are. They kind of look like they used to be viruses, and then they, they kind of got inserted into the human genome, and then they got copied again and again, and that's one of the things they just thought was junk. It's not doing anything. It's an evolutionary holdover from some virus from who knows when, and they're not doing anything. Well, they were doing these experiments with mice, and they found that these small little pieces of DNA were getting copied into RNA in the early embryo. So, well, that's kind of goofy. What are they, what's the cell doing that for them? That's, that's just a waste of time. So they developed a way to block those little RNA sequences from being used for anything. And they, they did that within these embryos, and the embryos died by the four cell stage. My goodness. There were over 50,000 of these little short little transcripts that were being made in the early embryo, no other time in development. They shut them all down, and the embryo died. That's we have fantastic. no idea what that means. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Well, it I mean, is fantastic, well, and it, it just shows another little piece of stuff that just seemed to be useless to anybody who looked at it now suddenly has some kind of life-or-death function in the earliest embryo. Well, it's almost like, I, forgive me for jumping in and, and maybe over-interpreting, but it's almost like how they accuse us, uh, design proponents, of saying, well, you know, if I can't understand it, God did it. Well, it's almost like they have a, an equivalent uh, dodge. That if I can't understand it, evolution did it, in other words. That, well, that's right. They have their own evolution of the gaps. They accuse us yeah. of God of the gaps, and they have the exact yeah. same thing. Well, natural selection did it somehow. We just don't know how it did it. And it must well. not be important. It's just kind of <laughs> leftover junk from evolution, whereas the, yeah. des- the design proponent would actually predict that eventually we will find a function and therefore would lead them, would spur them on to find that function. So that's yeah. where maybe design thinking encourages science. I think it does. I've been hearing the, the junk uh, moniker tossed around for 
for a good 30 years, and it always bothered me. It mm. always bothered me. I said, you know, there's just a part of me as, as, a, as a design kind of person, it, this just doesn't make sense. There's got to be more to it than that. We're missing something. Right. And, mm. you know, now suddenly we've got the tools to investigate it where we just didn't 30 years ago, and we're turning up all kinds of, of evidences. One of the other things Sternberg said is that what they're realizing is that almost the entire genome in one way or another, is transcribed and is used. Wow. Almost the They don't know what, it all, what all it's doing. And so I asked them, I said, well, Richard, this is all fairly recent research. I mean, how are people in this field, in this genome research field, how are they reacting to this? <laughs> and, wow. And in his, in, in his typical understated style, he just said, well, what I find is that at NIH, National Institutes of Health, that, well, they just don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of a. It's like you know they they look down and their feet paw the floor and hmm. Let's change and the you sign. know and that's another sign of of hope. It's another sign of the progress we've made because what they realize is that if I actually talk about this in anything else than a muted publication of mine, then some creationist, some design guy is going to come along and point this out, and I'm going to get in hot water. So I'm just not going to talk about it. Wow. Well, we're having a fantastic conversation with Ray Boland, president of Probe Ministries, a Ph.D. graduate from the University of North Texas in uh, molecular and cell biology. He is the author of The Natural Limits to Biological Change. Dr. Boland, let me ask you a real quick question. Since Probe Ministries deals with areas of a theological nature and worldview nature, would you say, speaking of junk, we have human junk. We have our own you know, all all the time, as C.S. Lewis put it, every day, every hour, we're violating our own standards. We're accumulating, yep. as it were, the junk of our own waywardness, our own rebellion, or what the Bible calls sin, missing the mark. And all of us have, have done that. Every There's no human except Christ, of course, who hasn't accumulated that load of junk. And Christ, apparently, it looks very clear from Scripture, says that he would take the junk away in 40 seconds. What did Christ do, in your view, to, to, to solve the problem of the human junk? Oh, well, you know, over 2,000 years ago, he was here, and he spread his message. He, he performed the miracle, identified who he was, gave left no uh, doubt about him, his claims to be the Son of God, and then demonstrated that by, first of all, predicting his death, going through with it without complaint, without protest, as, as the Son of God, and that claim to his, of his, and then on the resurrection, three days later, proved and demonstrated everything he said was true, and the resurrection is one of the most attested historical facts we have from the ancient world. And of course, it's the facts that we like to deal with on Darwin or Design, and it's that ultimate fact, the fact of Christ's death for our sins and his resurrection, which is our greatest hope the source of eternal life. Jesus says, "You uh, come to me that you might have life. I offer life freely, no charge. And you can take that life today if you're listening to Darwin or Design and if you've never experienced it. Contact us at apologetics, information at apologetics.org, information at apologetics.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Ray Boland, for joining us on Darwin or Design. It's been my pleasure. Okay, join us again next week. Another great program coming up. Thank you. <laughs> 